Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with a special guest. His name is Daniel C. Daniel is a productivity consultant in Australia, and he's the co-founder of Spacemakers, which is a productivity consulting group for busy leaders. He's also the award-winning author of his book, Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. His book won the Australian Business Book Award in 2021 for personal development and was the finalist for Best Technology Book and Best Cover Design. Daniel also originally trained as a physiotherapist as well and has had experience working in health and project management and changing the culture of healthcare in the rehab field. This is a great episode where Daniel and I chat about the intersection of technology and burnout. We talk about the concept of digital overuse. And we talk about the uh, culture of healthcare and how he took part in creating sustainable and real change and how we can all learn from his experiences in the field as well. So grab your drink of choice and join us. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. I'm so happy to have you. I'm so happy for you to share your story with us and to talk a little bit about your book today on creating space and creating healthier habits for for healthcare providers, if you know, in in the sense of technology, because it's all around us, we can't escape it as much as we'd like to. Uh, (laughs) um, But before we get into that, can you tell us more about yourself? Yeah, sure. So look, I'm the director of a company called Spacemakers. Uh, I'm in Australia. So 
I don't know if you've heard of Tasmania. You may have heard of the Tassie mm-hmm. Devil. They actually yes. exist. Oh, not like no the cartoon. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm married uh, with to, to a nurse, actually, Kylie, who's oh. a nurse, and, and I have three young, well, three children. They're getting older. Mm-hmm. One's nearly 15, so I keep saying they're young, but no you know, they're getting older. <laughs> and so, look, I, I run a productivity training and coaching and consulting business. I train globally. Uh, help people get their inbox to zero each day, a product called Email Ninja, which we created a long time ago. Um, I help people with lists and productivity. Uh, and obviously, I've written a book about making space in the digital age. So how to be more productive, more happy and whole by unplugging as a rhythm and as a pattern each day, each week and each year. Awesome. And what's the name of your book? Oh, space Maker. How to Unplug, Unwind and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. I absolutely uh, love that course, title. I- yeah, thanks. Well, it, it is true to the name. I do show you how to so do So true. I love that. Well, I believe that. And I just love the name. It's because it just tells you exactly <laughs> what the purpose is. And this is why I'm here. I, I'm, a, I'm a space maker, but I used to be a physiotherapist. And so I trained and did a decade of physiotherapy, uh, clinical physio from, you know, through many different fields from amputee physio to orthopedics to musculoskeletal community. And then I ended up in uh, management, managing a large health service uh, as a physiotherapy manager in government and moving into project management and uh, the story goes from there into different careers until I ended up where I am now. Wow. So can you tell me at the time, so I'd like to learn more about your story and how it's evolved to where you are now. Can you tell me what got you into physiotherapy at the time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I wish I had a better story. Yeah. I was very, I was very <laughs> driven as a young child and yeah. I love I love to learn. And I, I loved school from that perspective. You know, I was a really dorky kid and had no friends, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that wasn't good. But, uh, <laughs> but I did love learning. And really my goal was to get the best scores that I could. And I think I got the best scores that my brain would allow me to get. And I remember we went on a trip and I was like overseas and my scores came through by this old fax machine in a two-third world country. And I got good scores. And I literally went down the list and thought, well, I don't want to be I, I missed out on medicine. I thought, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a dentist because my dad's a dentist. Physio is the next best thing. Wow. Uh, and honestly, it it wasn't much, it wasn't more thought out than that. I mean, I knew I liked people and I knew I wanted to do something caring. Yeah. But I wish I had a, a, a more well thought out story. I'm telling my <laughs> kids, you must think more about your career. Don't do it the way your dad did it. <laughs> well, do you think that's part of the reason why you got out of it? Would you say? I'm, look, I'm very grateful for yeah. physiotherapy as a career, and yeah. I wouldn't change anything, actually. Uh, Good. That's I great. was fascinated in the study. I learned, like, I was actually quite an awkward person. I didn't have many people skills when I was young, and physiotherapy was great for learning how mm-hmm. to problem solve and communicate and build relationships and have compassion yeah. and think scientifically and objectively. Uh, like, I don't regret any of it. It was great. Yeah, it really. Um, and it, as I said, I worked in the field for over a decade. Yeah, it really is the perfect blend when you think about it. I mean, I've been practicing for 14 years and I just, yeah, I love the interaction piece of it, the building relationships piece, but also mm. the application of science too and, and that piece mm. as well. So you you practiced for 10 years. And can I ask you what, what made you go into management as well in the physio mm. field, like from clinician to manager? Just curious about that. Yeah, so that was a huge transition for me and really important in my life, actually. 
So after about two or three years, you know, after the first you know year of an undergrad career, when I was 21, so I went straight from school, then to uni, and I had my first job in a country hospital at 21. Wow, I was young. Yeah, and so you know, for a new grad, you always freak out, and there's that just pain and insecurity of being in this profession and realizing it's way harder than you thought. But once I'd gotten through those first few teething years, I started to recognize, actually, I'm just not sure this is for me. I'm good at my job and Mm -hmm. others think I'm good at my job, but I just started to realize I don't think I'm ever going to have a passion for it in the way that I see others have a passion for physiotherapy. Mm -hmm. And I certainly wasn't going to be able to reach the top of my field without that passion. I'm not a very detailed person. I'm not good at observing gait and people's body movements. And there were things that I just thought, I just, I feel like it's a bit of a left-handed kind of career, not a right-handed career. And and yet as a young person, I, you know, without the years of self-reflection and self-understanding, I didn't quite know how to communicate that to myself. Wow. But uh, after about seven or eight years, I was definitely like, I'm cooked and this is not for me. I like a lot of it, but I don't actually think I'm great with patients. Oh, wow. And then um, I was job sharing with someone and I was doing a rehab ward at the time and they were really hyperactive and they loved having ideas and they, they basically started about five or six quality improvement projects in about three months and they documented them all, submitted them to the hospital and then they resigned. And I was left with all these <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, no way. <laughs> off the side of my desk. And because I'm a fairly responsible person, I thought, well, I suppose I better finish them. You put your hand up. Actually, I finished them and I loved it. And I actually realized I'm really good at projects and I'm good at changing things. In fact, one of the things was we created an easy seaboard. I I increased the scope of the project, created this rehab board where you had magnets and people could communicate between nurses and allied health about the mobility of a patient. And we ended up trademarking and selling it. So it was actually a really exciting project. And, and it started to help me think, oh, maybe there's ways I could be a physio and contribute without being a patient-oriented mm-hmm. physio, like a, like uh, a direct treating care. patients. Yeah. yeah, direct care. That's the yeah. word. Uh, I've been out of the field for too long. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I applied for a deputy management job and uh, everyone was surprised, but I got it. Um, and from there, I ended up really launching into management and I felt like a pig in mud for quite a few years. I just felt like, oh, I literally felt like, I'd had my wings clipped for a decade and now I could fly. It's a really unusual feeling. Most people don't yeah. feel like that when they enter management. And mm-hmm. I had the completely opposite. I was experience. just going to say, I don't think it's usually that feeling from what I understand of, of others is that it's it's quite a transition in itself. Wow, that's quite interesting. So you did that then for a few, two or three years more in management? Honest. Five, I think. Oh, yeah. okay. You were, and I, you were, yeah. Um, and I look, five. I became a qualified project manager. I started to train and coach and equip other leaders because I realized I had leadership skills that they didn't have. Wow. Uh, and the skills that I picked up through, you know, reading voraciously and looking mm-hmm. at different productivity research, I started to realize that actually the basic skills on how to do this job that I find so easy aren't as intuitive to a lot of people. And they need those skills, which obviously started to lead into how do I train leaders in a broader global sense. But yeah, it it was a fascinating experience learning to work in my own strengths. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a strengths finder coach now as well. So I'm a a huge believer that we actually have strengths and innate gifts and we actually need to try to align who we are with the types of roles that we have. I think my experience shows that. 
yeah. uh, no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't work out how to palpate a particular supraspinatus tendon. You know, I just couldn't work it out. And yet mm-hmm. I can think in terms of con- complex strategy and people management like it's it's just breathing air. And and there's a there's a personality type that is needed to really lead well. And there's a personality type that's needed to be a great clinician. And wow. sometimes they cross over, but they don't they don't always. And I don't think it's as like as seamless as it felt for you, right? When they do cross over if, or if they do. So can you tell me about um, your interactions? So once you turned into the managerial role and you got into the admin role, what did you notice from that lens of healthcare, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that in terms of the culture, in terms of burnout from your perspective? Can I ask yeah. you what year this is, by the way, roughly? Oh, what you year? don't mind me asking? Oh, how I said I'm not. <laughs> it wasn't a good that long ago. Uh, I, and probably, I am. <laughs> I'm probably looking at 13 years ago. Okay, maybe 14 so, years ago. Okay, so, a while ago. so yeah, yeah, it's still very relevant. Yeah. Like burnout. When was I first entered about. management. Yeah, when I right, first. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, what did you notice then about yeah looking from that lens on healthcare? Yeah. It's interesting. I, around that time, I watched this movie. Um, it's pretty macabre, Sixth Sense, and I think they have um. A line from Bruce Willis, they said, I, you know, I see dead people. And I actually remember thinking, well, I think I see culture in a way that oh. is weird. Like I almost see culture like a person. In fact, I see culture more easily than I see a person. And I don't, it's kind of like a sense, which is weird. And what I noticed is actually, uh, Peter Drucker says that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm. And I looked at the culture of our community physiotherapy team. You know, we had 17 health sites and about 70 staff. So it wasn't a small, small team. And so there were many cultures because there were many health sites. But overall, I just thought there's there's some really unhealthy things about the culture and the unwritten ground rules that are behind the culture. And they are the real thing. They're the thing behind the thing that stops us from progressing with patient care, with health and with with wholeness. And so I um, I was under a, another manager and she was amazing and she gave me free reign because she trusted me and she gave me the ability to do a culture change project and I had no idea how to do a culture change project. So we made it up, but I ended up getting a group of people together uh, and it started off because I had a conversation, a coffee with one senior leader and they said that we have had five managers in five years mm-hmm. and every manager comes and they're, they're good managers they're energetic, they work hard, and they have new ideas. But I just know that we're just going to go in a big circle and use lots of energy and effort and change things, and then we'll be back exactly where we started. Mm. And so I just don't have the energy to participate anymore. And that described Mm. exactly what I was seeing everywhere else in the team. Mm. So what was happening is people were putting their head down and saying yes and nodding and ticking the boxes but their heart didn't believe that change was possible. They were tired of change and they didn't believe that the change would actually lead to long-term change. It would just be walking in a circle, if that makes sense. No, it's from the clinician perspective, and I work in hospital, Daniel, and I have for most of my career, I have seen that happen where mm-hmm. things, you know, so I can I can relate to what they're saying for sure because the intention seems to be good, right? Like the intention oh, yeah. is to create change and that it just doesn't sustain. Or what I find is that things kind of recycle around, right? Like, and that's what I've noticed over the course of time. But yeah, so creating sustainable change is, is maybe 
you know, a good definitely a yeah, good and real question change, of you. you know, right. Not just not just thinking that if I create a policy or a process that equals change and not right. just thinking if I change the language or the logo that's changed, that it has to happen at a culture level. So they're the right. the stories, the language and the beliefs of a group of people and how they play out in the everyday practices. Okay. And that's harder to do. And yeah. so what we did is we created a working group of senior leaders, of junior clinicians, of therapy assistants. So to try to get the range of people and they were going to help us work out how do we create a strategy. And I got them to interview their peers anonymously. And we wrote a whole lot of data and we collated it into one big spreadsheet. So we, and I wrote the questions, but we wanted to understand what people really thought. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up distilling what I thought I heard. And it was amazing because peers trusted peers. So they shared like they would in the tea room. Right. And we wrote it anonymously. Yeah. And so what happened is I ended up doing a presentation of about half an hour and I said, this is what I think is really going on in our culture. And I just read out about five or six statements that I'd heard again and again, uh, like around here, we don't trust management. They're nice people, but I'd rather just get on with my physio and pretend that I don't have to be involved or uh, around here if you have a morning tea break you're actually really lazy and you're not part of us Uh, around here we are better than the acute sector because we're more practical and we know how to listen to people you know and all these things that came out and and you heard a pin drop it was like (laughs) I was reading their fortunes and it was like this is like my secret stash, you know, that, that and but yeah. we did it as a public group. And a lot of it was around here. Our manager doesn't listen. They don't care about us. They actually, you know, like there was some really personal stuff and wow. we put it out there. And then when, yeah. you know, my manager and I, we needed some therapy after that session. I can but imagine. Um, what it allowed our team to do was to realize we have actually been heard for the first time in a long time. Like we've really been heard. And that opened the gateway to a process where we could start to build trust and that led to people actually sharing their voice and actually hoping that their opinions might lead to change. Mm-hmm. And we ended up distilling it all, going from where are we now to where do we want to be. We created a plan on a page, so a one-page strategic plan with no more than five key, not pillars, but just specific mm-hmm. projects. And we really ruthlessly rationalized because the research says that if a team aims for more than one or two big goals in a year, they'll achieve nothing with excellence. So the the more you focus and the more you eliminate, the more likely you are to achieve what you're going to say you'll achieve and the more likely you are to actually get it done. I don't know if that connects with your your experiences at all. Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to say, I found it so interesting when you expressed the vulnerable statements that were said. So they were vulnerable to their own words in a way. And instead of shutting down and maybe mistrusting you even more or not trusting you even more, they actually felt more heard. So I, yeah. and I know there was an anonymity and things like that, but, um, I, I find that really fascinating. So we were vulnerable too. Absolutely. Like, they were yeah. genuinely, some of the statements were hard actually. Yeah. Yeah. And we owned them and said, look, we're, we've heard this. We're not sure what to do about it. We didn't try to solve it and just say, well, I'm not like this, or this is how we'll fix it. We just, we just sat yeah. in that painful space and said, let's not solve this today. Let's just acknowledge that this is where we're at, but we did it collectively as a team. It's really powerful. That's very powerful. Like I I can literally feel that as you're talking about it. And I was literally having a conversation with a colleague today about 
being pretty stressed out and, you know, not taking a lunch and things like this that have been happening pretty consistently in my case. And, um, and we literally had said to each other, it just feels good to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not easy to talk about and it's not easy to, you know, not everybody knows what everybody else is going through, but just to, yeah, just to connect on some common ground, you know, mm-hmm. it, it is quite powerful. So mm-hmm. it's almost and to like do that as a collective is even like it's powerful right. individually, but it's also really powerful as a community if if you yeah. can find, yeah. the, if you can describe the unwritten ground rules of the culture and, yeah. and to do it vulnerably together in a way that doesn't fix it, but is well facilitated and holds that tension. Right. Because again, from a change management or a chaotic theory research, you need to move people to the edge of chaos to get change. And that doesn't mean you have to kind of give them so much work they feel they're going to die. It means that you need to, to, to move people's hearts and minds to the point of disruption. And that's mm. what this did. It, it disrupted us. Totally. And, um, yeah. It led us to the point of you, you either, like you can't go back once we've put our demons on the table. Right. You either go forward or you hide or, you know, or you deny. But what we found is you started to get that change curve where I got the early adopters on board. Oh, I, chose, I chose the right people for the change group. Uh, and then we got the, the you know, the, the early majority started to come at this stage, not the late majority, but enough of the key people said, I think I've got enough hope and enough trust now in leadership that I'll, I'll start moving forward with them. Okay. And we and didn't so- finish the process there, but that was. Oh, okay. That's what I was going to ask. So how did the, how did it continue to unfold culturally? Was there another survey that was done in a way where people did like give other statements again? Like, was there a follow-up just to see overall? Yeah. So the first round was, where are we now? And yeah. what's really happening? The second round, we did it again. Where okay. do we want to be? You know, and we started to dream about the future and dream about the changes. And, and we got increasingly specific. And then we did what most people would do on a planning day. They would get together and they would dream about those ideas. Although the ideas were already on the table, we didn't watch a paper them in the room itself. Okay. So we collected the ideas privately distilled them and then we thrashed them out and we and we worked out how we execute them mm-hmm. and really clear plan I think if you have a complex plan you'll never win people over it needs to be simple and doable and also it needs to reflect the heart and mind of the people who are going to execute the plan so you need to bring people along the process mm-hmm. but at the end of that what I found was that I reckon we had the early majority but the late majority were just sitting back and they were hopeful we definitely increased hope and belief mm-hmm. But uh, I was thinking, what's needed to really flip this thing permanently? Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that actually the game changer would be executing well on what we said we would do. And that's, I've seen this again and again. This is where managers fall short. Even if you bring the people along and you commit to something, if you don't execute it well and execute it publicly, meaning um, make sure that the win becomes obvious that we won, then you'll lose people. So I didn't actually choose the most important project or the most difficult one, I picked the one that was simplest that every I knew everyone wanted and it would be a clear win. And that was basically changing the way we do data to make it simpler for clinicians okay. and so their process was easier. And I, I nailed that within three months and quite literally I felt this huge, like when we presented it, it was like the whole room was like, oh, my God, change is going to happen. Wow. And from then on it was like just everything was easy for the next three years. People got into working groups, people upskilled in project management. We got all the projects done and we just kept going with it. It just got simple. And that's the thing about culture. You know, we, we fight the wrong battles, I think, sometimes. We fight process battles. We fight people battles. But I actually think 
ultimately we need to look at things through a cultural lens because culture eats strategy for breakfast culture eats policy for breakfast and if you can follow through yeah there's another group i see that that honestly all they needed to do was to change the carpet on their on their palliative care ward and because of what the carpet meant everyone would have been on board. And so I ran this process with another group. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose what I didn't say is since then I've run this process with lots of groups. That okay. kind of became part of my business until I, was I saw say. that aspect. <laughs> yeah. Before I go forward, I mean, does that connect? Are there any questions? Yeah, that really does connect, especially from the data standpoint. Like you looked at the culture and the project technically was related to data, which I think is such a huge thing that contributes to the energy that we spend as clinicians, you know, outside of direct care, but on top of direct care that consumes us. And if it's, you know, it's literally looking at a screen, it's clicking, it's all of like, in terms of data, it's you're absorbing a lot and you're outputting a lot simultaneously, it seems. And I I find that that's pretty, it's straining. Um, And it's, it feels, and honestly, I I find that statistics, we call it stats in Australia, but it it, it just feels meaningless. And actually, I never hear about how the stats actually get used. And increasingly what we've found is that the, the processes used to collect the stats become more time consuming. And so <laughs> we listened, you know, we tried right. to do what we had the power to do, even to simplify it a bit to acknowledge, okay, the, this is a meaningless stat. So let's get rid of it. Does that make sense? So yeah. it wasn't that they weren't tokenistic, but but it was it was let's change what we actually can, realizing that you can't change everything. I mean right. managers can't change everything. Right. And that's really important to own as well. People respect when you say you can't change something, as long as you are changing what you can and and battling for the things that matter, even if you know you're going to lose those battles. Right. And that's the thing, like in healthcare, technology is going to be there. Like we can't, we can't get rid of it. And in a lot of ways, it's really been helpful. But like you said, in the ways that we can change and then coming together, I think that piece is so important in listening to everybody's voice, you know, and giving them the space to do that. I think is that's transformative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So you wrote your book called Space Makers. So can you tell us a little bit about it? It's about making space in the digital age, speaking of which. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. what what do you mean exactly by making space? Can you tell me what what that means? Yeah. Um, and look, I think it links to that whole experience. That yeah. The quality of a manager, the quality of a a person's inner life actually is more important than sometimes their skills. And what I would have said is even as we rolled out this process again and again, I saw it happen again and again. We rolled it out. People had hope. You know, we heard people. It is a highly repeatable process. But what happened again and again is the managers didn't follow through. They didn't execute. Mm. You know, they they didn't do the basic stuff that they promised to do. And it was almost like I felt after a while that I was like um, Frankenstein who created a monster and we would consistently create hope in a group and the managers wouldn't follow through. And it was almost worse than had they not had that hope in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and so for me, it's actually totally. about upskilling people. Uh, and so I started to move to how do I build up management skills and training, but also how do I help people examine their inner life and their inner resources and their mindsets? Because it's often insecurity and it's a lack of confidence and a lack of the willingness to be vulnerable that stops the change. It's not the skills, it's not the processes. And so the book really comes out of that idea that uh, if we are going to lead ourselves, our families, our organizations, well, we need to make space to think Mm -hmm. deeply and Mm -hmm. to rest fully and to relate to people in genuine ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, And increasingly what I've realized is 
our relationship with the online world deeply impacts our ability to, to self-examine our lives. And therefore, we need to tackle our relationship with the online world to make space and invest in space away from technology, not simply to assuming that if you have space, your life will be fine, but, but then to invest your life in particular principles and practices that are really healthy. And so the book covers both unplugging, but also what might you do with your life and how mm-hmm. might you unplug if you're addicted to technology day by day. Okay, so can you give us, because one of the um, indicators for burnout is decompressing and, mm. you know, um, resting, and I would think unplugging to some degree. So can you give us some insight into what's recommended when it comes to kind of unplugging from technology? Because you're right, it, I think we sometimes think we're numbing ourselves out by using technology, right? We don't want to think, we just want to scroll sometimes. Mm. And whether it's conscious or unconscious, I think we do that. But that's probably not good for us either, right? Like that's not restful or healing or anything like that for us. Absolutely. Look, so I originally I originally set out to write a 20-page ebook because oh. <laughs> I had a number of art. I wrote a blog post about why I turn off my phone all day, sad day, every week. Okay. And the media lapped it up. It was like new, it was fresh. This is seven years ago before people were talking about technology and unplugging very much, actually. Okay. And what was interesting is I, I thought I'll just write an ebook about my practices. So why I don't start and end the day with technology, but I charge my phone outside of my room. Uh, why we have a digital free meal based on the research. Uh, why uh, I have a day off you know, once a week. And how I create spaces in my work life to think away from technology, like walking around the block or having actually half a day or a day to think where it's part of my management role to Mm -hmm. think and to be strategic. So therefore, I need to carve that out away from the workplace and the hospital life, be at a beach and actually reflect on my team and my culture and my direction. So I just had all these practices, but then I've coached a lot of execs and I've shown people these practices and I thought, this isn't working. There's something about our relationship with the online world. This is coming back to culture. Mm -hmm. There's something about our relationship and our beliefs and our mindset to technology that makes it almost impossible to do the things that are simple. So the idea of, you know, turn off your phone a day a week and you'll be absolutely fine. You know, like, I mean, Jennifer, that's easy to say to you, but it's probably not that easy to do, right? Yeah, right. And and so (laughs) it's not complex to do the habits and practices, although it is really helpful to know what's useful. Yeah. But there's a deeper paradigm shift that's needed in our heart and our head. And so the book starts with what is the paradigm shift that's needed to change us? Why are we so addicted to tech? How does it change our our neuroplasticity? How does it relate to our cultural stories of freedom and choice? How does it relate to power? and digital power and our expression of love and worship. So I I talk about some of these deeper issues that I think stop us from being able to have a healthier set of digital habits. And then I talk about the principles of living well based on the research outside of the tech realm. And then finally, I'm like, okay, these are the annual and weekly and daily habits, but you need to shift your heart and your head to sustain this change and really experience a better life of rest. Uh, And I think burnout very much relates. It's not as simple as the external stuff. It's the internal that leads to the external. And we have to go from the inside out, not just the outside in and have the right conversations. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a key piece is to have the right conversations. I think we we struggle knowing that part of it's systematic and part of it is individual. So I think that, you know, we're, we're in limbo constantly, but we don't have enough of the conversational piece and bring everybody collaboratively together. I, I know some places are doing it, but I, I don't think it's a standardized practice. Mm. Um, in a way. So 
So what have you noticed is, and I know there's many different pieces to this, but collectively our paradigm, what is the collective paradigm as it pertains to what you mentioned in terms of our, you know, our healthier habits or in terms of rest or in terms of not being able to turn off our phone or like, or or not stop scrolling? Like, what have you noticed? I don't know if you can generalize a little bit, but I know it's different. I mean, I can generalize. If If I look at the general cultural story that we live by i think it's right. that more technology makes us happier healthier more productive okay. that will be rescued by tech yeah. and the problem is that's true to a point so what i've found is if you if you map productivity and technology on like an axis we believe culturally that it's a linear relationship more technology is more productivity but actually what i've found in the research in multitasking and uh, mental health problems related to overuse and what i've seen in coaching is that actually there's a point where you you need technology to do your job well you need it to thrive so that's that's true right but then what happens you get to a point where too much technology you know you've got a now smartwatch. use it for exercise you you use it for (laughs) entertainment recreation family engagement you start to use it for everything you start to reach this plateau where more tech doesn't make you more productive or happy or healthy you kind of reach a productive middle but what then happens is you slide down the opposite side. So it's like an upside mm. down curve and you actually end up in what we call digital overuse where you become distracted and wired and tired, mm. where you start to uh, feel like you're always busy and more anxious, but you're not achieving as much as you were before, where you do things that are recreational, but you're still tired and you're mentally tired and spiritually tired, not just physically tired. And and that, I mean, that this is burnout stuff, right? Right. So, I was just going to say. So, um, yeah. And so so I think a huge contributor is post-COVID, our entire culture has shifted to the right-hand side. And so what used to be digital overuse is now normal. And almost all of us are experiencing this. You see this actually in the research in iGen or the younger generations born, I think, uh, around 2012. Like mm-hmm. you see this in the younger generations and their mental health stats and, and this complete like... That's concerning. An- yeah. Anxiety. stuff. But it's yeah. it's now starting to play out into the rest of our culture right. in terms of it's it's starting to impact the older generations, not just oh the younger ones, because we're all experiencing digital overuse. Yeah. And so so the book really has this premise that we need tech skills and tech savvy to get productive. And a lot of us actually don't have enough tech skills, which is why I teach tech skills. Mm. But at the same time, like you know, email ninja, list assessment, how do you do the basic stuff? Right. But um, at the same time, I think the really, really important set of skills for, for digital wellness nowadays is making space. So learning to unplug and unwind on a regular basis to deeply rest, to realize that you won't actually just rest without practicing it. And you, and you probably won't unplug unless you're intentional. And you're doing that to slide back to the productive middle from a place of overuse. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Um, like you said. And we need both. And this is where the conversation needs to be mature. Right. Exactly. Because, you know, and then just with the rise of EMR, like electronic medical records, we're constantly Mm. on a medical record a lot more than we ever used to be over the last few years, right? So that I'm sure contributes to the digital overuse in in combination with our personal usage of of our devices, which already was, most would probably say was too high to begin with as well. Like you said, it was already higher and now we've gone way over to overuse. (laughs) Yeah. And if you think about like from a burnout or rest perspective, uh, if we think about 
we're knowledge workers and most of us are knowledge workers. So we're paid to think, we're paid to you know, know things and to yeah. activate that. Yeah. Uh, so if, if our work is swiping and typing and looking at the internet and communicating with online devices, I think healthcare is less so than let's say engineering or management or business, but it's, you right. still have a fairly high tech load now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that is your job, then if you go home and you're typing and swiping and communicating through Twitter or Netflix or you know Instagram, uh, your brain can't tell the difference neurologically between the apps you're using. The medium is the same and the behaviours are the same. And then we wonder why we never feel rested. Well, it's because we're not actually changing our habits when we rest compared to when we work. So if we want to truly learn to rest deeply, we actually need to assess what is work for me and, and what is truly restful in a, in a heart, mind, body, spirit perspective? And then how do I create a rhythm in my week where I'm actually disconnecting from work and moving to rest, realizing that the blur relates to technology? And so we just have to ask these genuine questions, then end up with you know, very simple, specific practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but can you see how I'm like, you yeah. can say I'm burnt out, but then all I do when I rest is watch screens, play computer games and scan Instagram. How is that neurologically different from what you do for work? And therefore, am I surprised I don't deeply feel rested? Wow. I never thought about it that way because a lot of people will say that that's what they do, right? They just go home and they watch TV and they just put on Netflix, let's say, and they call that unwinding and relaxation. I know I have, that's what I do too. But I never thought about assimilation with it being still all technology in a way um, and stimulating that way. And wow. neuroplasticity, you think about right. it. So if we, were, yeah, if, we, if we were to practice piano like one hour a day or two hours a day, within 10 years, we would, you'd be amazing. If you right. were to practice a language an hour a day, you'd be brilliant because your brain changes neurologically you know what wires together fires together i think what you know i've forgotten my physio analogies <laughs> but you're but, good. Um, but, but we're practicing the internet nine to 12 hours a day on average in america uh, i'm not sure about canada i'd probably say it's probably nine hours a day if you add up all of your screen time right and that that is a practice that is creating neuroplastic changes in our brain which is changing the way we think and the way we rest the way we act and yet we don't think of nine hours on screens as internet practice like we would practicing an instrument but neurologically, it's exactly the same. And so we need to be aware of these issues and start to think about the power of unplugging and making space and, and, and where we should create gaps for our mental health and our happiness. So you're telling me that there's still um, hope <laughs> that we can, we can kind of um, undo some of this in a way or we're oh, using neuroplasticity, right? In, uh, in a sense. Tremendous. So, it works for us. It works for us it, as well as against us. Why yeah. is it so hard, Daniel? Are people, yeah. like, I don't know who, like, based on your clients and stuff, I don't know what the feedback has been. Maybe you could share that with us in terms of the challenge or the ease, the surprising mm you know, the surprising uh, facts maybe that they found easier than they expected. I know I would find it difficult. I'm going to be honest with you. I love to read. Right. Okay. And that's what you said in the beginning too, is kind of change one or two things, right? That was kind of one of the things when you um, were meeting with your team at the time, right? In terms of goals. Uh, So this is interesting. Yeah. So tell me, so tell me what the feedback's been and yeah, enlightening. Yeah, look, I, I would just say change some small stuff. Okay. Uh, with any with any transformation, find a little bit of space. So, so some examples. I I'm a huge believer in starting and ending the day with your own thoughts. 
and not someone else's thoughts. Okay. Uh, to end the day with two people in bed or one person in bed scrolling, you know, Instagram or playing Candy Crush, it, it's not great to finish the day. You could be talking to each other or reading a physical book. You could be writing a diary or just thinking and reflecting about what the data of the day meant for you personally and how it might change your inner and outer life. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a great yeah. way to end the day. Yeah, and definitely. when you wake up, do I really want to start with COVID stats and what's happening in you know the war in Russia and Ukraine? Like, why can't you wait for twenty minutes to hear that stuff mm-hmm. and actually think about your day, pray, reflect, meditate? Like, does that make sense? So, so mm-hmm. if you charge your phone outside of your bedroom and you create a daily pause at the start and end without tech, there's some space. Mm-hmm. One simple habit is a game changer. Okay. Uh, another habit I think is powerful. I mean, I mentioned it already: a digital free meal. If you have a family or you you live with other people, the research is tremendous. Habit author uh, Charles Duhigg suggests that eating together once a day, you know, at a table without technology, is a keystone habit, like exercise. Like okay. when you exercise, as we know, it unlocks not just physical health but mental health. It makes you more motivated, which helps with debt outcomes, which helps mm-hmm. with a whole lot of things that are way beyond wow. the activity itself. And eating together will increase young kids' numeracy and literacy skills. It reduces teenagers' mental health anxieties, reduces teen pregnancies, reduces marijuana usage in older age, increases college entrance scores, uh, reduces debt when they're adults if they ate together regularly as a child. Wow. Uh, Like it's tremendous, the the simple habit of eating together without tech. Um, Not going to your screen to eat and not having your screen come to you, but eating and talking And in the book, I give some very specific questions you could ask at family dinners that kids love that can create really meaningful conversation. Again, that's a very simple practice. Mm -hmm. Put your phones away. If someone texts, we don't check at dinner. And if you just did that and just started and ended without a screen, that's brilliant. You might move to the more full-on practices like a daily day of rest, a Sabbath without tech, but you don't have to start there. Does that make sense? Wow, and there's lots that, of that makes total sense. You can choose some of these practices and, and change your life and change your relationships. Right. Now, have your has your book been, um, like I know this is all great for individuals, has your book been shared organizationally as well for like not just in healthcare but in general? Do organizations actually share your book too and um, just to change the culture in a way, right, overall? But yeah, I just think that it would be a really good tool to have at that level for all staff to kind of refer to and and learn from. Because you you did say it took you seven years. To write the book. It, yeah, it, it's taken me fifteen or twenty years oh. to learn the habits. Okay, uh, you know, but uh, that, as in, that as makes in, they're sense. Not that, they're not that complicated, but as you know, you know. Oh. I've had to go on a process of changing my mindset and habits as well to teach others, you know. Right. But um, yes, yes, I have a course called uh, Making Space, so how to unplug, unwind and think clearly in the digital age. It's a awesome. three-hour course that I run online now for teams across the world, uh, you know, HR teams, you know, engineering teams, teaching teams, you know, obviously health teams. That's and I, I, I help people go through this framework of changing their paradigm changing their um, practices and then and very specifically giving people to pause and reflect on how each of these practices I go through about seven of them Mm -hmm. how they help us individually and how they help us collectively to make space to think and rest deeply Uh, and essentially it's a digital wellness course it's it's about recognizing the need for wellness and training our people investing in people 
Uh, and it's interesting from a management perspective, you know, why would I pay to run a course to help my people unplug from tech and be healthier? But uh, it helps with retention. If, if it helps, if you, if you care for your staff and they know you care for them, well, that is going to increase engagement as well and, and that sense of trust that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Definitely. I just think it's really important that if people are healthy in their soul life, if they're healthy in their relational life, in their personal life, it, it always flows into workplace productivity. So I think yeah. it's worth in this new age investing in the digital wellness of our communities. Yeah, I think we have we are so in a way detached from our inner selves um, without knowing maybe all of the reasons why or thinking certain reasons may, may not actually be true in a way, right? Um, because we're just so focused on the outside world right now and, and being pulled into that, whether it's work life, whether it's social, whether whatever it might be. But yeah, so this is a really good, this, this podcast is a really good reminder for me to, um, <laughs> to assess and reflect. And I reflect often, like often, sorry. So yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this one for, for a while. And um, I can't wait to read your book. So and, um, and learn more from you and start with myself first and and work my way out yeah, so. no, thank you and I, I love these conversations yeah. you know, with a with a, a fellow physiotherapist <laughs> yeah like it can't get I better. was so excited when I heard that you're a physio and I got to have a you know a PT to PT chat so uh well me uh, too I, I like I was... learning from each other Yes, totally. Um, well, I'm so happy that you're here and that you've shared your book with us. Is there any advice that you have? And you kind of touched on this in your own example, really, over the course of, of your um, your careers. Uh, what is your advice to healthcare workers and administrators who are really trying to create more space for themselves and minimize their burnout risk, but also see that maybe collectively there's there's more healing that needs to be done too what's your yeah. advice i just thought of you know the, the thought that came to mind is that you know that wedding quote from uh, the apostle paul that love is kind you mm. know from first corinthians and mm-hmm. I, uh, I think love is kind and we should be kind to ourselves and i think it's hard healthcare is hard i mean I am so glad I wasn't a healthcare worker during the pandemic. Yeah. And I can't imagine how hard it's been for you emotionally and mm-hmm. physically and politically and organizationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, I think if we can be kind to ourselves, that's a good thing. And for me, making space is about self kindness. Yeah. And giving ourselves the permission to love ourselves by being kind on ourselves and and helping us to make space to do the things that really matter for us and our families, even around work. Yeah. So Beautiful. be kind. Love that. Love that. Where can people connect with you, Daniel? And um, yeah, buy your book and or even uh, inquire about any training. Yeah. So the, the book is in most places. Yeah. <laughs> so just look online, Space Maker. Google it. <laughs> yep. Google it, Daniel C, Space Maker. Uh, it, is, it is an audio book if you want to hear another oh, seven nice. hours of me you know, <laughs> yammering on. Uh, although I feel embarrassed about the audio book as you do when you hear your own voice. I was going to say, uh, so you narrated it yourself. Okay. I did, but <laughs> I hate you. it. But, you know, that's that, okay. I think that's great. <laughs> Uh, I am at spacemakers.com.au. If you, you can get a bunch of free resources. If uh, you look at there, I've got a blog. 
that I write stuff with. But in terms of the making space training, I'm just about to put it online. I've actually just recruited a, an amazing trainer from Canada. Oh, uh, so she'll be doing our North American and Canadian training. And she has an HR background. She's absolutely brilliant. And she reached out to me because she loved the book. And I said, well, actually, why don't you train? Oh, I love <laughs> and, that. Uh, she'll it's be great. ready to go by mid-April. Awesome. Uh, and so so we just run a three-hour course for teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use, obviously, mostly training online. Although, you know, if you're in her region of Canada, she could do it face-to-face. If that <laughs> yeah. still happens, I'm not sure. <laughs> We're getting there. Yeah. We're getting there. <laughs> We're, We're getting, getting there. there. Yeah, but anyway, I'd love I'd love a conversation if you're interested. And I even have resources about the process we went through with the health change yeah. and a plan on a page. I don't do that anymore, but I'm happy to um, send videos out. We created an e an e learning course years ago to guide people in the process. So awesome. I have resources if people are curious. You've just personally for me have just given me so much value just in this conversation. Um, so I will be definitely checking that out and hope hope that you and I can continue to keep in touch uh, moving forward from here. Th- thank you so much for being here. Any last words? I, I loved Love is Kind. I don't know if love you could top kind. that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you guys are amazing. I, you know, there's a there's a TV show in Australia where the Tasmanian guy, because we're a tiny country town, couldn't hack it living on the mainland. And I reckon I probably couldn't hack it as a physio anymore. So, um, you know, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing and, uh, and you know, do the amazing stuff that matters and, and hopefully be kind and, and make space along the way. That's all I would awesome. say. Awesome. Love that. Thank you so much, Daniel. Take care. Cool, okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes. And you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jenniferGeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.